Hello, everyone, and welcome to In the Pit, a Yale School of Architecture Fabrica podcast. You are listening to a live mini-series entitled Lost Ritual Storytelling. This podcast aims to elevate the power of storytelling and pedagogy, a long-held practice often forgotten in Western scholarship. We are your hosts, Sosa Erebor and Sydney Mobert. Special thank you to our audience today. You have around 10 minutes at the end to ask us questions and engage with the guests. Thank you to our music brought to you by Tim Hawkins and September Beats. This is episode three, present. Today we have Jerome Hafford, Curry Hackett, and Khalid Hassan, and we're so grateful to the three of you for taking the time to have this conversation. So to introduce our guests, first we have Jerome Hayford. Jerome is co-founder and principal of Brandt Hayford. This firm is a Harlem-based architecture and design studio. Their body of work includes academic research and a range of built projects. From the domestic, to the workplace, to the urban. Performance and play, abstract versus built form, nature and territory, and the individual versus collective are some of the interests explored in the practice. Hayford, Jerome, has worked in the offices of OMA, Rem Coolhouse, Bernard, and teaches at Columbia, CCNY, Bernard, NJIT, Pratt, and here at Yale. And next we have Curry Hackett. Curry is principal and founder of Wayside Studio, an independent transdisciplinary design studio established in 2019. The studio employs diverse site-specific methods to realize projects of sociocultural value. The studio works at multiple scales to bolster the relationship between people, their communities, and the environments that support them. Wayside looks to these, marginalized, um, to these marginal places to inspire our work and finds opportunities to celebrate under-recognized patterns and histories. And lastly, we have Khaled Hassan, our friend, fellow student. Uh, Khaled is a first year at Mark I student at Yale School of Architecture. Prior to Yale, he received an honors degree in design from the Ontario College of Art and Design, commonly referred to as OCADU, in Toronto, Canada. His work speculates upon the juncture between communication, technology, and informal economic supply chains as a means to develop community-led building projects in rural contexts. So now that we've read your extensive resumes, and the audio is a little bit muddy, our apologies. <laughs> um, we would love to hear Jerome, Curry, and Khaled, your stories and how you define yourselves. So Curry, please feel free to go first. Everybody, I'm super excited to be here today. Um, yeah, I, I have sort of stumbled, um, or I, I joke and say that I sort of accidentally became an academic uh, and a practitioner. Um, but I, these days I tend to um, describe myself uh, more as an urban designer. Um, I tend to tell my students that I'm uh, concerned not, not as much with the buildings so much as the space between buildings um, and the kind of environments and, and happenings and, and, and uh, dynamics that happen in, in those spaces, so. Thank you. Curry and Jerome, please. Uh, so you want our story? How long? Ooh, we have <laughs> we all have the time in the world. Like 10 minutes. <laughs> 10 minutes. So Curry, Curry, tell us more of your story. I was short. 
Oh, sorry. I thought you said describe yourself. So I, I, I was, I was given the uh, the cliff notes there. Um, but but yeah. So I, I uh, started my I guess career at Howard University when I went to undergrad, um, which was a phenomenal experience. Um, you know, every aspect of the diaspora is represented there, and just kind of really, um, really started to um, sort of submit this idea of what a black landscape was or could be. Um, and I think that started to, uh, at least unbeknownst to me, begin to um, sort of influence my ideas about the discipline and, and how I could be situated within that. Um, my first job out of school was, uh, was working for uh, an architecture and engineering pro uh, a firm in DC, um, which was working on a, like a massive, like two and a half billion dollar stormwater management project. And, um, that was that was great, you know. In school, I find we often uh, build things, or design things that are um, vertical and above ground, and this was very much a kind of horizontal, below ground stormwater tunnel project. Um, and so it also kind of got me thinking about, uh, you know, how design can be leveraged uh, for sort of ecological um, matters. Um, and. Um, I kind of got a lot of institutional knowledge in that project, which afforded me the opportunity to become my own consultant. Um, and so I uh, started kind of collaborating with people and, uh, to, 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 to get public projects in DC. Um, the first of which was the first major project was the Howard Theater Walk of Fame, um, which was uh, which is the second largest uh, public art project in the city of DC. Um, that's like a uh, about a tenth of a mile long commemorative walk, uh, and uh, that was like a cultural, my first big kind of cultural uh, project. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, those two projects sort of like formed uh, my sort of dual interest in like cultural and ecological issues. Um, of course, they're they're obviously entangled uh, in various ways. Um, and uh, I started my, my consultancy, it's called Wayside Studio, that's kind of born of that interest of uh, what happens sort of in spaces that we tend to forget or misunderstand or um, under, under understand. Um, and so yeah, I'm just super, super kind of intrigued by uh, liminal spaces um, and sort of redressing what we, could, what we, what we uh, define as, as liminal uh, and marginal. Um, and uh, that has sort of influenced the work that I've done in the classroom. Uh, it, I was first invited to teach at Howard for a super session. Um, I'm now teaching at UT uh, Knoxville in Tennessee. Um, but between that, um, sorry, became a, uh, became a core organizer at Dark Valley University, which is how I met Jerome. Um, and uh, yeah, I've just been having a lot of fun working with um, Folks like Janice Bloomberg, again uh, Jerome, and, and sort of trying to tackle um, sort of alternative alternative ways of, of uh, describing space and taking inspiration from um, uh, non-majority, uh, or I should say, global majority uh, cultural frameworks to to sort of inspire um, new ways of thinking about like spatial possibilities and, and sort of working to redress the discipline. So. Um, yeah. Thank you, Curry. <laughs> Jerome. Uh, I, 
I'll, I'll get him to talk about Farm Bill at some point. <laughs> I was like, I want to hear about Farm Bill. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, thanks, Curry. That was great. Um, I guess I'll, I'll give a, the clip notes as well for me. My name is Jerome Hayford. Uh, it's great to be here with you guys. Um, I, uh, I guess I made my way through and into architecture fairly straightforward. Uh, once you, in terms of my education, uh, um, beginning with Ohio State as an undergraduate and then going straight to Yale. Uh, it was sort of one of those. I guess that's still a thing. Um, uh, but sort of even predating that, I'm originally, so I'm originally from Northeast Ohio. Uh, I come from a mixed racial background um, that is Akron, Ohio based, uh, and then more rural on my, my mother's side, rural Ohio versus rural Georgia on my father's side. Uh, and I, I would say that I, I think I carry into my, certainly my current interests or an approach, a certain kind of cultural, um, cultural sensitivity or interest as well. I think coming from my mother primarily, who was a journalist and a writer, uh, which was kind of the main influence in terms of like a parental influence, uh, being raised by a single mother. Uh, and a twin brother who is now um, primarily an activist and a restorative justice coordinator, uh, facilitator in DC, uh, where he is also overlaps with Curry and others and out of DC and that Howard, Parker Howard network. Uh, uh, but then, you know, also kind of had uh, a sort of figurative painterly art interest. And I wanted to sort of, uh, I wanted to go to school for art. Uh, but that wasn't practical enough to kind of took typical story. And so it was sort of, I was limited to, I think both my twin and I had to, were strongly encouraged to enroll in engineering college. And so Ohio State, the architecture program is inside the College of Engineering. I took the engineering math and physics, like well into my second year. Hilarious now that I think about it. Uh, and anyway, but, but kind of progressed through that amazing program, uh, and then came straight through to Yale, where you guys are. I was there uh, a little over a decade ago uh, for my MR, uh, and then kind of coming out of there, uh, again, somewhat fortuitously, accidentally, um, uh, ended up at Bernard Sheeney's office, uh, where I spent about seven years. Uh, and then while in that office, I was kind of tinkering around and collaborating with numerous people, primarily my current design partner uh, for our office, uh, who was also uh, in advanced studio with me and other seminars while at Yale, um, which is where we started collaborating. Her name's Brant Knapp. Uh, and so we, we, we uh, basically started our, our kind of practice almost out of necessity after winning um, a competition for a, a large installation and residency at Socrates Sculpture Park, which was also kind of on the fringes of the city. Uh, and so began kind of this, what we called at the time, uh, like guerrilla practice of finding these opportunities to produce kind of public installations and uh, actually build sort of architectural work 
uh, that was to greater or lesser degrees of ephemeral in, uh, in the kind of fringes of New York, uh, New York City, so then Harlem, uh, Long Island City, or some other places, uh, and then Astoria, where we were just building these, these installations while we were working uh, at firms for a few years. And then that uh, combined with relocating to Harlem uh, sort of became this kind of partially provincial practice in a way where, uh, which continues to today, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in my home uh, in Harlem now, uh, where we kind of hung out our shingle more formally um, in about 2017, 2018, uh, and continued to sort of expand what it, what started as a kind of public art practice into a larger collaborative architecture and urban design studio uh, where we do continue to collaborate with artists. I think we have that kind of framework uh, set. Um, and so we try to do that as often as we can. Uh, and, and yeah, began to do a lot of projects uh, kind of place-based, you could say, uh, maybe in a different way to hurry, but uh, kind of emanating both practically and because of, uh, it, it fit into some of our interests from this epicenter of our home here in Harlem and, and kind of doing a lot of work with this community here uh, geographically uh, and uh, programmatically. Uh, yeah, so that's kind of, that kind of brings us to today. We, you know, I, I then, um, you know, over the last few years, uh, you know, and Dark Matter University is certainly part of this, uh, kind of began to go through my own um, sort of autobiographical uh, sort of reckoning with uh, certain aspects of my own ancestry that had been sort of erased or kind of um, not as apparent or addressed. And that sort of directly and indirectly led me to become more interested in other aspects of my sort of professional activism and disciplinary worlds that were uh, that I kind of ghosted and erased certain um, cultural frameworks, uh, in particular kind of black American, brown American um, cultural frameworks. So that sort of autobiographical um, kind of uh, uh, exploration started to sort of impact on other areas of, of my professional interest, academic interest, uh, which is kind of where Curry and I, I think, linked up uh, in some of our collaborative uh, collaboration. So when we met at forming DMU together about a year and a half ago, uh, we fairly quickly just found that we had a lot of overlap in some of these sort of cultural practices, modes of production that we were sort of trying to tease out uh, and sort of bring into our kind of design space and academic space. Thank you, Jerome. Amazing. <laughs> I'm just keep rambling. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, Khaled, we'd love to hear your story as well. Yeah, so it's definitely less interesting than both of yours, but um, I'm a first year student, um, primarily interested in publics and issues of publicness. So I'm really excited to hear what you have to say today. Um, also, I'm kind of curious as to how. Um, like rural contexts um, have really implicit and informal um, economic structures that play into publicness in ways that aren't typically defined 
because um, when you think of public, you think of urban, you think of crowded. Um, so that's kind of my current preoccupation. Um, and I'm excited to hear about both of your work. I know it's really involved with um, just different public art, different public policy related stuff. So I'm excited to hear from you. Okay. Uh, that wasn't, was that a question? Um, just, or just, I'm just excited to okay. hear you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, congratulations to both Curry and Jerome for your brand new class at Yale which I was able to TA last semester. Um, it's going into its second year this spring. I would love to hear why you called it fugitive practice. What does that mean? How did you find that name, that terminology? Um, yeah. And Curry, do you want to kick us off? I was actually going to kind of kick it to the road. Cause <laughs> I, <laughs> because it was it Jerome sort of, uh, had the idea and, and was, was already in talks with Yale and then we, we sort of fused that way and developed the syllabus from there. But um, we, we, in a way we kind of post-rationalized, I think, once we, once we came to Padua. But I, I actually would love to hear Jerome's note first. Yeah, I, I think, I think uh, yes. Um, yeah, I, uh, in this, this was the summer of 2020, uh, was approached to teach here and uh, kind of through those conversations decided to do a seminar. And uh, I think at that time I was, you know, um, I was sort of thinking some of the courses around um, these kind of, you know, boasted or sort of other erased modes of cultural production and forms of design. Um, uh, that uh, are sort of outside maybe a, a, a kind of colonized framework or a kind of white framework. Uh, but, and, and so I, 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 you know, and I was kind of looking at um, the work of people like Bokwase Dyson, um, who I was working with at the time on a project and who, whose work had really impacted me and some others who were looking at things like fugitivity, uh, Mario Lugan is another, uh, as a sort of condition, but also as a kind of framework for understanding uh, sort of cultural uh, uh, zeitgeist or sort of historical uh, modality uh, of different peoples. Uh, and then I thought, okay, you know, uh, you know, I definitely put it out there as a publication, not knowing fully what the, the content of the course would be. Uh, but, but I knew that I wanted to sort of bring some of those histories into a sort of architectural disciplinary discursive framework, which would inherently be something that is not as commonly found within our canonical discussion. And there's a kind of double fugitivity there, which we can talk about. There is literally the history of fugit the fugitives who have resulted in us being here today. Um, or literal fugitives, if we think about sojourner group or any sort of enslaved, many enslaved subjects and others of that diaspora. But, but that teaching that knowledge and naming it as architecture, as this discipline, is somehow also this kind of transgressive act. And that this knowledge has always been here, is here, is very active in many, many spaces. It's just not so active in the spaces mm -hmm. that our discipline sort of 
tends to kind of announce itself in, like the one that you're in now. Yeah. <laughs> so it felt just like, okay, let's, uh, I don't know what the course is going to be about, but I want to talk about these subjectivities who are fugitive to our sort of epistemological framework. Right. And then when Curry linked up with me very early on in developing the course, we sort of built it out from there. Yeah, I, mean, I, I love what you're saying about uh, like double fugitivities because I was thinking, you know, there is like we're kind of saying two things at the same time, um, at least. <laughs> um, because I, I, you know, when I think of fugitive, you know, it, it's really about fugitivity is really all about kind of escape as a means of survival um, and, and agency. And so um, I, I think in a way we're kind of escaping from traditional modes of practice. Mm -hmm. Um, and at the same time, um, legitimizing those modes of escape, um, right? And so, and, and sort of unpacking and, and considering them as, um, yeah, like as viable means of understanding space. Um, you know, or understanding, understanding the discipline, understanding practice, pedagogy, all of that were kind of put at the table. Right, and to, and to look at someone like Tropoise, those modes of escape and of self-liberation are very operative, and, and we have yet to fully understand and unpack and integrate those modes of self-liberation into how we practice. Right, and the, the act of escape or, or self-liberation mm -hmm. is, is something that happens that we have not studied enough. Right, right. I think it's important to just, like, even reframing escape Right, not as a purely reactive action, right. right? But as something that is that is self-liberating or self self uh, um, self-actualizing. Yeah. So. I wanted to ask each of you. And necessary. I don't think. This is <laughs> But I wanted to right. ask each of you how fugitivity played a role in your formative years. Because the course like helped me to better articulate, I took the course, I took fugitive practice. It helped me to better articulate some of my lived experiences in such a way where I was understanding them now as having an interaction with the domestic realm as a domestic ritual, as opposed to just like, oh, we cook rice and beans, or we do this, or I paint, or we make tapestries. So I wonder how it played a role in each of your lives. Um, I'm gonna ask Curry if you could go first. Yeah, sure. Um, so I've been mean, circling back to this idea of escape. Um, as Jerome mentioned earlier, I grew up in this really small town, Southern Virginia, work of like 20,000 people in the county um, in Farmville, uh, Farmville, Virginia. And, um, you know, my, my mom's side of the family had uh, all this farmland that we've had at least for 100 years or so. And so, I, you know, I grew up near that, near and on that land. And, um, you know, really kind of um, got to understand what it meant for, for black folks to kind of have uh, agency, right? And so that, um, interestingly, at least in my, my, at least my mom's side, that the, the, the notion of escape that is from a kind of plantation uh, environment um, is not something that I was taught. Um, that was a part of my family in a kind of immediate way, if that makes sense. It was, we, we had, we had uh, kind of developed a sense of agency for ourselves through the uh, acquisition of land. Um, and so, um, 
I, I, in contrast, coming to DC, which was also kind of a means of escape, right? Like by the time you're a senior, uh, um, you know, in high school, almost anywhere is better than home, at least in my case. So I sort of escaped DC uh, to DC, um, and you know, going going to Howard was like another, you know, that in a way, like it, it almost seemed as if everyone had, had kind of escaped some framework of uh, you know power, control, domination, whatever oppression, um, and to find you know to locate, um, I guess the the. Uh, the result of that escape found itself on Howard's campus, right? Uh, so just in a few hundred, in a, in a few acres, you have this tapestry um, of that, that constitutes the, the diaspora of campus. Um, and then sort of relating it a little bit more to practice, uh, my practice, uh, you know, the wayside is basically kind of stemming from that that very thought of, of, of fugitivity, right? It's um, that which is kind of again, that is, which is kind of forgotten or under or underprioritized um, patterns that are, are that are kind of marginalized, uh, particularly in the public in the public realm or in the built realm. Um, so you know, I think as a as a black practitioner now, as a black academic, um, I am kind of always approaching things um, with um, with a kind of critical uh, bent. Um, towards like thinking about how we can redress normative conditions, normative modes of, of learning, of working, um, and so yeah, that that is uh, uh, both sort of metaphorically and as an analog, there are our means of escape. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that's I, I think escape. I, I keep circling back to that word escape, but I think that that's ultimately how I've begun to think about like. That's this is how we've done things. This is where I am, and like this is where we can we can go with the discipline or with practice or um, you know epistemology. You know, like we, we can go so many other places from where we've been, and, and that there's a lot of escapism, necessary escapism that we can take away from that. You want me to go ahead? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, I think uh, I want to pick up on, so for me, what comes up, I think plays into when Curry you're talking about basically just regressing um, or troubling any the sort of normative, right, right, normative condition. And I think for my, my formative experiences, I would say my formative existence was an affront to the, uh, so the sort of prevailing norms, both at a close range, but also at a, at a sort of cultural level. Um, and I think I'm sure Curry and, and you, you all would, would agree with this at the, at the sort of societal level, being a kind of brown body, um, uh, a queer body, uh, a single parent child body, uh, growing up in you know urban and then suburban Ohio on uh, certain in certain contexts, in, in a way is a kind of uh, bodily and cultural fugitivity uh, in a sense to those environments. At almost, at almost all of those environments, I was, I felt very much othered mm. by those qualities, uh, and and I think you know. And it's interesting. It's interesting. Even you know, you know, being a sort of single parent child was, was sort of an interesting fugitivity 
uh, of relative poverty, of, of kind of relating to that feminine presence in a certain way. Uh, and, 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 you know, to get more literal, maybe in terms of content, one example I think that was formative for me was uh, her writing. She, she did some reporting and some writing on the indigenous peoples of that area of Ohio. And that was one of some of the earliest texts that she read to me was her research and her writing on these indigenous people who had lived in Portage County, Summit County, Ohio. And that became very real to me. And I very much identified with that, that sort of indigeneity. Um, so that was, that was a kind of formative sort of intellectual and historical presence uh, uh, that was very, that, that my mother very much infused into my twin brother and I's development was this, this awareness of the kind of indigenous presence in Ohio, both in Akron and in sort of more rural um, Northwestern Ohio, where we have a family farm, which we've had arrowheads on that farm and these sort of things that was very present to me. Um, but yeah, but then I think, uh, I, I think, you know, back to Curry's point, just very much identifying with uh, having all of these forms of moving through, these modes of moving through space, these modes of expressing myself and of those around me that were, that were thankfully encouraged to some degree uh, by that parental figure and not completely policed. Um, but then getting, getting older and realizing that these are not, that this is not the normative mode, right. right? And even while young, I mean, being, you know, at, at times the only brown person yeah. uh, other than my twin brother in school for years, uh, you know, until I got on to college and, and had left my school, my other school that was more diverse. So, yeah, I think very much identifying with the sort of, this kind of redress of, of, of prevailing norms. And, and, and radically, uh, kind of, radically acknowledging that there are so many ways to sort of facially practice, to express, to express oneself, to sort of live in this world in a Saibia Hartman kind of way, uh, that may not sort of reify a kind of normal mode, uh, but is equally valid and equally practiced all over the place. Um, just on that note, you were talking about like how the way you move through space may or may not encourage or exacerbate the state of fugitivity. So I'm kind of curious about like how spaces or like the construction of spaces um, can act as an instrument, um, albeit like ontologically or quite literally. I know, uh, Kurt, you do a lot of work with wayfinding and public art. So I'm kind of just curious about like the instrumentality of architecture in terms of like easing one's need for to engage with fugitivity. Um, do you think it has a role? Does it not? Um, I guess that's the project, but I want to hear what you have to say about that. Great. I only heard, sorry, I only heard bits and pieces. Oh, no. The very last part. Yeah. You were saying, you were saying how can the construction of space sort of uh, kind of like produce or agitate? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And just like the discipline feels so opaque at times. So like how can like spatial practice ease one's need to engage with fugitivity. Got it. Yeah, I mean, I think in a way it's, it's, it's funny, right? Because um, we've been talking about escape up, up to this point. Um, and at the same time, um, 
you know, I think Jerome and I are kind of enrolled in this um, effort to create conditions where folks don't have to feel like they're at this game. Mm. Um, and so there's, there's a little bit of a, perhaps a paradox there. At the same time, it's like, what gets lost if there aren't conditions where you feel like you have to escape? Or, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. If, if there's nothing that there's, if there, what, is, what gets lost if there's nothing to push up against, I guess. Um, and so, um, you know, that, that, that I think, I guess, what I, I guess what I'm saying is like there's always going to be conditions of fugitivity because there's not a foreseeable future or a foreseeable end to the kind of oppressive conditions that we're, that we're currently living in. Um, and so we can kind of continue to see people be more and more and more ingenious and clever and radical uh, with the ways that they kind of take space um, and shape space. Um, and I think, um, you know, something that, uh, that yeah, Jerome and I have been kind of grappling with in class is, um, you know, those, those, those uh, modes of escape, uh, those, but, and, and those, uh, those modes of cultural expression, cultural production, um, are entangled with architectural production. And that's not talked about enough, I guess. It's like how we're shaping space, how we, and, and, and um, what constitutes as a, as a spatial practice, um, I think is not talked about enough. And so, you know, in a, in a way, I'm like, I'm way now way more interested in, uh, um, you know, uh, food, you know, the cook, uh, cooking, uh, culinary practices, uh, sort of style, practices of style, modes of style, like doing hair, uh, you know, different genres of music. Um, all of those to me are like way uh, more interesting um, and have much sort of uh, um, juicier uh, relationships uh, and potential for the discipline that, than the discipline itself, if that makes sense, um, as it's currently understood. So, um, yeah, I find myself like always trying to like reach outside of the discipline so that we can then look more critically at discipline. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I'm always kind of reminding my students is like, especially here in Tennessee, uh, where most of my students are white, uh, but I'm often using cultural precedents from, from a kind of through a kind of black diasporic uh, uh, lens. It's like, I'm not asking you, we're not, we're not, we're not, I'm not interested in us making uh, black culture, right? Mm -hmm. But we can use black black culture frameworks as a precedent for how we might kind of complicate uh, kind of prevailing modes of, of work and, and 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 practice and build it. Um, and so, if we're looking at say tropes like the front porch, which tend to blur lines between public and private, individual and collective, indoor and outdoor. Um, like what lessons can we learn if we take that sensibility and map it onto some other aspect of the discipline, if that makes sense. Um, and so I think that's where like, yeah, like there's like, there's a kind of uh, important role that like I think subjectivity, um, especially like those of marginalized folks um, has uh, in informing and interrogating and complicating the discipline as we know it, and that, yeah, it, it, it basically, when you when you start to do that, it starts to crack open everything. You realize that the discipline actually is, frankly, super ill-equipped 
to describe um, most of the issues that we can and should be tackling. Um, and so, yeah, you know, you, you kind of need to be looking outside. You need to be looking at these like spatial, other spatial patterns, cultural patterns, um, subjective, hypersubjective patterns to kind of some, uh, inform a new nomenclature, right? Um, so that we can, can start to define, um, we can, yeah, we can, we can kind of envision new, new possibilities for both us and the, and the discipline. Yeah, and and, um, and then I guess I would just add to that, you know, or second that uh, that you know what gets announced as, as architecture um, has to do also with what is sort of considered legitimate forms of aesthetic or spatial expression. So I'll give another example. I think Curry, those examples are good. Um, literally, the studio I'm teaching now is looking at the Bronx Museum of the Art. Uh, and an expansion project, which I was part of the shortlisted team for. So, very exciting. Uh, and I was, you know, I just came from a desk grip where I, I'm working with a student who's from the Bronx, and he's sort of asking himself, you know, and Curry and I, we've actually talked about this. Like, why are these things that we do outside in the street like not permissible inside this building? like have block parties, like hang out on the tops of cars, just chill. And so his project is now about legitimizing those forms of expression that we do outside, that some of us do outside in the street, on the inside of the building. Uh, and sort of legit, uh, kind of legitimizing spatial framework for that to take place. I think that's like a, an example that I think speaks to your to your question. I I wanted to ask another question. Um, I was reading Fred Moten and Harvey's The Undercommons, which gets into fugitivity, and uh, the introduction starts to talk about inviting chaos, inviting disorder. And I was thinking about it paired alongside like these kind of harmonious models of like affordable housing, like something that's just like constantly repro reproduced and just like constantly infecting sites without considering its surroundings um, and the potential for those to be sites of insurrection. I wonder, is that a condition of chaos that we invite where it's like, well, through our behavior, we should be inciting fugitivity, or should we be creating spaces that are inviting to fugitivity? So I, I'm asking basically like the, the abolition or the creation question, like should we be moving away from those models? Since they are working as sites of insurrection already, they are doing the chaos in a sense, or should we be trying to start something completely new based on these rituals that we love? And, and these models, do you mean uh, Moten? The, the, the suburban house, the affordable housing model, like these like typologies that are constantly getting taught in architecture school that mm. uh, we look at as like paradigms. Like I'm wondering, since they are functioning as sites of insurrection, should we be inviting it or should we be destroying it altogether? Um. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like you're asking maybe this bigger question 
um, you know, like evolution or revolution. Uh huh. Yeah. I can't. Uh, you know, I guess I have a question. Are these models inviting our spaces of insurrection? I, I would think so. Can you give an example? Are you thinking about? I would think so because with the suburban model, you have these systems of repression that are already known. Whereas with forms of blackness, you have these other forms of repression that are only known to us. You have our own forms of classism that are gonna be interacting with the white form of classism. Those have to interact in a given space. So you kind of have like the intersection of what like Sadia Hartman describes as like the beautiful thugs versus like mm -hmm. the suburban house. Like what happens when those things interact? Should we be inviting right. them to interact? Or should we be I, giving I people their saying. own space? You're saying, yes, okay. So you're saying, what does it look like to begin to maybe uh, innovate or radicalize the existing systems? Yeah. Or, or kind of typologies that we have or do we try to move to some sort of place outside? Exactly. Right, which is what Saidia and others are kind of also looking at in terms of this blackout force, right? Yes. To, to achieve this, this other condition outside of this framework. Mm -hmm. uh, right? Which may, might be different than destroying everything, right? Mm -hmm. So I tend to be these days a little more for like evolution versus the, the kind of pride, the sort of uh, classical revolution, because I feel like they, a lot of them, uh, a lot of that language triggers uh, kind of patriarchy to me, uh, and other forms of violence that end up being replaced, as you're describing, by new forms of sort of patriarchal power. However, I think it's a really interesting question to think about how, how we begin, what, would it, what does it look like to begin to radically reassociate these existing spatial types with blackness, et cetera, uh, like Curry and I have been looking at with like the rural, right? What does it mean to now be reassociating urban black and brown people with the rural countryside, suburban countryside, et cetera? I think there's interesting things that can happen there that I ultimately for me make it something that it wasn't before, perhaps. So maybe, maybe that, maybe that trans transition happens within the kind of or out of the existing uh, but indeed I, I, I am interested in this sort of this black outdoors this, this outside condition right that, you know Amanda Williams is looking at this uh, with her views at MoMA uh, space you know what does it mean for us to go to space so that's a that's a project that I'm very very excited to to to, to speculate and and think about, uh, but uh, but it's a different sort of thing. Hurry, I don't know if you have thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, um, I was thinking about a review at Howard last semester, and someone was like, a student was framing a project around the mission of Black Joy, and mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, anyway, I think the project was fine, but I, I ended up making a comment that, you know, um, as soon as you kind of put the word black in front of something, it's just like this profound modifier for whatever comes afterwards. Or dark. And so, yeah, or dark, yeah. Or fugitive. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I, I, uh, 
you know, I, I, I think as soon as you say something like black joy, right? Like you're saying that jo black joy is distinct from, from joy, vanilla joy, right? And so um, I, I think, but at the same time, uh, like it, I think it has to be understood or, you know, we, I don't like to make the assumption that just because black is in front of it, that is sort of this photo negative of the, the, the plain uh, noun. I guess in this case, right? So black black joy is not the opposite of joy, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, it's some, it can be something completely different outside of that kind of dichotomy, false dichotomy there. Um, and then I, I, I think that you, you, could, you, could, you, could, you could map that sort of idea, I think, onto anything that, that black folks create. It's, it's something that's so profoundly different than what would have, I don't know that it's the opposite, right, of, of, uh, of what is um, before we kind of redress something um but it, it is very very different um and i i often think about jazz actually uh through that same lens uh i think it was art blakey i might have that wrong but somebody was saying that you know jazz couldn't have occurred have occurred in africa um right it it is a reason why it's a distinctly american uh product and project um, and it had to do with the entanglements of you know, say European modes of music making and rhythm, and, and even just the idea of writing down music um, as opposed to like an orally uh, shared uh, tradition. Like all of those things had to kind of come together um, to to constitute this this very different, you know, this thing. Um, and so, yeah, it, I, at the same time, yeah, it's, it's that that project is very different than what we've heard. It's almost a mutation, not as opposed to an evolution. It's very different than what we came before, right? So um, I think uh, finding uh, relevance for what's here, um, I think it, that's a tendency that, uh, that we do very, that's a, that's a thing that we do very well, black folks, marginalized folks, is like finding, finding what works, emphasis on finding, um, and like bringing your own kind of uh, uh, facility to that to that uh, condition and and transcending it that way. Um, I don't I don't know at this point. I mean, I think it's great to imagine like a, a different world, but that I mean, in a way we have to dream, and like that's a that's a healthy exercise. Uh, but at the same time, like there are real issues here right now on the ground, like that aren't going to be redressed in any material way anytime soon. And so I think it is important for us to kind of like, uh, there are some things, you know, that, you know, that, that we're not going to be able to tear down. And so we're, we, we got to figure out like, what can we do to establish that to make, to, to affect a degree of agency um, in the short term, right? right. Um, so. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if, these things are necessarily mutually exclusive, either. Right. Uh, yeah. Because I, I'll be the first to say, and, and, and a lot of my certainly teaching, but also just exercises, I think it, 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 can, it, it is, we have an imperative. I think it's very important for us to imagine otherwise, radically. Right. right? Uh, uh, and to, uh, you know, like, like Curry's saying, Place black in front of other words when we, you know, as as a as a as a as a means to imagine outside of 
use existing systems. I think we, we should be doing that. We, we, we need to be doing that. And also changing, transforming, mutating, you know, that which is I um I was kind of curious about like a time variable. Um, you guys, the reference to jazz was really amazing, um, but there's also like an ad hoc nature to it in that it happens. I'm using fugitivity again as a reference theoretically, um, and like in such a time of like environmental and social precarity, um, like how do how do we like make make intentional action um, when fugitivity is inherently based upon radical and um, situational response? Like how to create authorship in this I, regard? Yeah, I think, you, so I think we can, I think you can turn it into kind of intentional constructive practice, right? I think that we, we just, if we live in a, in a time of human history where our very being here uh, is it's through a, condi- a, a giant cultural, a societal human condition of fugitivity um, that we that we have amongst many other things to look at uh, for forms of ingenuity, forms of spatial practice, forms of liberation. That I still think you can then turn into kind of projective, constructive modes, right? And and look at the ethics, look at the kind of modalities, the aesthetic of those forms of liberation. Though I will say, maybe the, I think what Curry touched on this earlier, like pressure makes the diamond sometimes. So, you, you know, there, it, I think it, you're right. There is, there's a, there's a, there is a, a need to celebrate these cultural forms which have come out of these, these immense um, sort of, of immense duress and uh, spatial confinement. And uh, kind of the final Yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought. I mean, I think, like I was saying, in sort of uh, in the in the last point, though, is like the facility is always there. The folks right. have all always always have had the the intellect, the institutional knowledge to navigate conditions of these profound, I should say, conditions of fugitivity. Um, and I think. Um, that's what makes jazz such an excellent product, is that everyone there ideally is um, is is uh, capable. Um, and you know that, that lends itself to a kind of collective capability um, of, of, of production. Um, and so you know it's it's the the situational part is almost the uh, the independent variable here, uh, or the, I should say the the dependent, the dependent variable here, um, whereas it's the, it's the the constant is the people these folks have already have always had the the knowledge to to right. to to reframe you know uh, recontextualize re redress. Um, so I think that's I think that's that's what I think about. Um, in terms, that's what's always special to me that there's an interplay between collective and individual contribution, um, and I think that could be mapped into the, the broader, the broader project of architects and production. Say, right, right. Yeah. Thank you. And maybe this thing, real quick. Maybe sure. I'm sure. 
most generations feel this way, but I, I, I think that there's this, there's been a increasing sense of that we, we got, we got some, some stuff we gotta escape from, y'all. Yeah. Like, and so that conditioning ain't going, ain't going anywhere anytime soon. So when we get to a point where that's not acute, then you know there might be a, a, a lesson relevancy to these forms. But at the moment, like there's some shit that we gotta escape from and figure out a way out of. And so I think that the, the acute relevancy of those modes is is timely. And with that in mind, I'm going to ask this question, then leave room for questions from the audience. But I wanted to ask, with that in mind, um, most of us here want to escape the white standard canon of architecture. And we look to precedents for inspiration, but sometimes it's kind of hard to find uh, examples that aren't in the canon because they aren't as well documented or due to like oral traditions or um, they don't really have a plan, especially those that are much older, indigenous works, for example. Um, but your class was all about recentering black and indigenous design practices. And I wanted to ask how you approached finding those practices, labeling them, um, and using them for your work. And how can we use that and do that for our work, too? I mean, I would, I, I want to, I think I want Curry to, to also definitely weigh in here. You know, one answer to that, which is not exactly maybe what we did for the most part, but a little bit in terms of gathering material for the course, is like your life, your lived, yeah, knowledge is the is 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 the best source, uh, and not kind of like gratuitously or like um, narcissistically, but like. I think that's a ra that, that's a radical position that I've been emphasizing lately. It's like you, we do not bring ourselves to this discipline, especially people of color. This it is systemically discouraged to do so. So you know, just simply being like, oh, you know, that's why like I talk about my mom and I talk about these things, uh, which like feels like taboo or too personal. And I'm glad you asked about the formative experience because, like it or not. We're bringing that to what we do, and then it gets discouraged out of us, uh, especially people of color. And so that that kind of situated lived experience, first and foremost, is a great um, precedent uh, to think about and dig more into. Um, but then, but then, yeah, we we gathered material. We had to look for some of it. Um, I think we got some of it from you guys. Uh, Curry had had some great. Um, material that he had begun to work on, in particular um, things like the G's Bend quilters, which uh, I then became obsessed with, uh, that we made a unit out of. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Curry, where did you find some of the material? Yeah, I mean, some of these ideas, um, some, some of these, and I, it wasn't really, I guess, until the last couple of years, um, the, with the, I guess maybe the year leading up to the creation of BNU and, and all the kind of collaborations uh, uh, thereafter, but um, yeah, I, you know, I've sort of have oscillated between um, skepticism and uh, uh, curiosity over um, what relevance jazz has in architecture. Um, that 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 sort of frustration, I guess, started in undergrad and 
my theory professor sort of promptly told me that music and architecture weren't really, they, they don't have to be buddy-buddy, like mm-hmm. that stupid mm-hmm. quote says. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, so jazz was always kind of like, um, always sort of a touch point for me just because of sort of the points that I mentioned earlier in terms of collectivism, uh, and so that gets entangled with improvisation, but also tradition, right? And, and uh, um, you know, just being able to take, you know, social cues and all that, it, it does become a bit of a, a kind of social practice um, uh, when, you, when you zoom out a bit and think about how, how, they, how they actually produce this, this, this work. Um, but, but also, um, yeah, really just kind of turning on, my, on its head how I was even, what I was even considering a precedent. Mm. Um, if there, if, if, like say in quilting, you know, if there are a group of women around, situated around a, a table and they're all quilting, right? There's a kind of spatial implication there. Um, so I just got me thinking about what are the architectures of all of it that, that, you know, the black subjectivity sort of, in, uh, sort of, sort of enables, I guess, mm-hmm. um, or, or, or reifies, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm thinking about how hip hop was uh, formed in the South Bronx and the kind of courtyards of public housing projects. And, and like, I don't know, I'm just, there, I, I was reading the Lonely Monks uh, biography and it got me thinking that, you know, uh, Milton's Playhouse uptown, like all these, like all these buildings, all these, these, these structures and spaces that Delonius was playing in his apartment that had a red light bulb at the top of a, in a, in a, uh, a poster of Billy Holiday taped to the ceiling, right? Like that's literally like the kind of, if you were to ask what the architecture of Bach, the, the Bach movement was, it would look something like that, right? Yeah. Um, and so that just kind of got me thinking, you know, like, well, what other ways of, of uh, culture, what other modes of cultural production can lend themselves to a kind of spatial signature, I guess? Right. Um, and Jalisa and I, Jalisa Bloomberg, when we were doing our studio at Carlton, uh, it was a DMU studio, um, you know, she kind of, she was also taking inspiration from her uh, Panamanian sort of uh, ancestry. Mm-hmm. And we started looking at all this, you know, looking at indigenous rituals, walking, gospel music, like all of this stuff, it, it's sort of, it's, in a way you can almost like name the thing and then like kind of post-rationalize, like what relevance does this have to architecture? Um, yeah. Or what relevance does this have to space making, space taking, uh, space keeping? Um, so that's, that was kind of our, I think that was kind of our, our approach. Um, yeah, yeah I, just kind of roll with the, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, and Tosa, you're right, like, it's not necessarily going to be kind of listed, maybe, in the same way as, like, off in the canon. Um, you, know, all, you know, also, frankly, I was, I'm, I'm looking here at some of the, the material from the course that, uh, you know, a fair amount of it is from, is from a, a few friends that, that, you know, we're lucky to have in our network. Uh, and doing yeah. similar work, you know, Mario Good, right? Uh, and and I remember o- opening up Dark Space, and he was talking about these hush harbors, these bush harbors, right? And 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 I and I and I was kind of like, okay, there's something there, and I really have to credit credit him at least on my part for being aware of that precedent. Um, yeah, it was Jessica Belores, Jessica Belores on my side. Yeah. Um, actually, I, I found out about. 
Jessica Belores, uh just a few weeks before I, um, I actually uh, picked up my own copy of Dark Space for the first time, where he mentioned yeah. how sharp was in the, in the intro. Um, and I mean, I think these people are not, they're not dead, right? Like Amanda Williams is another, she's a, yeah. she's a, she's a friend, she, we're, uh, you know, we're, we're all talking over the airwaves on the daily and weekly basis, but, you know, looking at like, okay, looking at her work. So there is, there is starting to be a kind of community of, of thinkers who are, are, are kind of bringing things into the discussion, uh, right? And I have been, but it's, it's I think, more, it's it's it, it, it kind of ramped up, you know, the the production. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. I think it's also just unfortunately I think it's evidence of like the larger issue of exposure and access, right? Um, and, and authorship. Like who's getting the resources to to research shotgun houses, you know, and who's getting the research to like uh, you know, I'm thinking about like Scott Ruff and some of these other you know folks that are better at Jermaine Jermaine Barnes of course. Um, you know, who's, who, you know, those are just like, like two people I can know off my head, but like, why is it that like, those, those need to be, you need to have like hundreds of people a year that can like legitimize these sort of tropes of, of like marginal, like say business, uh, building practices, um, so that they do become more mainstream. And it's not, we're not just like, you know, um, scrubbing like Dezine or Arch Daily whenever we need to find like a precedent for school, right? It's, you know, we can, we can be a bit more informed. Right. right, but that that but there are things out there. I remember, and 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 because of the sort of relative marginalization of some of these folks doing this work, you do have to look sometimes for it. Uh, we yeah. uh, we were looking for a piece about I think like graffiti and rhetoric and 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 street word, and we found that piece throw word that was written I think by these guys out of Jamaica, and you know like. It was a, a nugget of really amazing material that, you know, we had to do a little bit of digging for, for things. Yeah. So, you, you know, so you gotta, you gotta look and see what people are doing out there sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I think also we, that, that, that class, I think in particular, and, and the studio actually kind of challenged us to be really critical about, like, even if we didn't have the plants, right, or we, and we didn't have images uh, or, or decent images of the stuff that we were looking at, um, say like the Hush Harbor, you know, um, it, it kind of forces us to be more critical in terms of like how we're interpreting those those uh, sort of archetypes um, as, as precedents. I find that gets, that's like a, a weak point that isn't talked about enough in school because the, the emphasis is so much on the precedent as a kind of gem, uh, a celebration of kind of individual genius, right? Um, and we don't talk critically enough about precedents, the precedents that we're choosing, um, the why and, and how, they're, how they're located in the culture, right? So I think all of that was kind of in our minds as we were, right. and we that's were, why uh, we're thinking about fugitive. Super thankful for your class and it's needed here at Yale, but I wanted to give the audience an opportunity to ask questions to our guests. I know we're a little bit over our time. Yeah. 
First off, I just want to say thank you both um, for the conversation. Um, I really hate to like cut it short in, in any capacity because I feel like the more we get the two of you going, uh, the more like gems we get from the two of you. So first and foremost, thank you for coming and speaking, and also speaking about uh, your personal experiences as well, because I know it, it's not easy. And like you said, um, it's not. It's it tends to be um, caught. Like, I don't know, it, it's not easy um, for some people more than it is for others. And I just wanted to, to ask you about this operative word that you've been using throughout the entire conversation, which is the word of escape. And how you've been using it in an interesting way, as like, you've been using it to describe a state of operation rather than a means. Um, to an end goal, which I think is fascinating. And I wonder um, if you think that operates more powerfully um, on an urban or, or an outdoor space, on the scale of an outdoor space rather than the scale of an interior or the scale of architecture. Um, and then also, do you find it tough to uh, square this idea of hybridity in the way that you speak about jazz and the idea of escape and like, how do you, how do you operate with hybridity in mind as well as escape in mind as two forms of operation? Maybe, maybe hybridity is the escape. I mean, for real. You know, like I, I have a, I have allegedly white mother, allegedly black father, and I'm neither of those two things in terms of, you know, certain ways of understanding my identity, which in some ways is a liberation, right? Anyway, or you were gonna say something. Um, well, I was, I was thinking about the first question and it kind of made me, it reminded me of a point I made earlier about like, uh, at least in a lot of traditions, a lot of, a lot of I'll say, I'll say the global majority, a lot of traditions in those, in those cultures, uh, aren't maybe necessarily as concerned with that kind of hard line between indoor and outdoor. Um, that being said, you know, so I, I wonder in a way that like that kind of throws a wrench in the question a little bit, but I also wonder, I mean, I, I'm interested in the, in the outdoor conditions um, just because as soon as you, open, you leave your front door, you're participating in a kind of shared public realm. Um, and, and regardless of what you, you, it, it, you don't have you're, you're, you uh, you don't have a choice, uh, frankly. Even if you're not actively participating, you are participating somehow into in, within this sort of multivalent kind of uh, hyper hyper exchange. Um, and so, at the, at, you know, I think that being said, I mean the public realm is, is we we talk about this in feature the practice, like feature the, the the public realm is is. Uh, equal parts uh, site of aggression and opportunity, as we saw last summer, right? Both of those things can be true. Um, and so I, I, I think my guess is that, um, you know, in, in a way, escape could have, has the potential of sort of stitching together uh, indoor and out, uh, interior and exterior. Um, maybe, maybe through that lens. I don't know if that's, if that's a stretch. Um, when I think about like, 
uh, jazz though and, and hybridity and, and, and escape and how escape kind of plays a role in, in, in that. And I'm just using jazz again, kind of as analog as meta and metaphor here. Um, it's all about like escaping the original idea. Everyone is, it's, it's just a, a collective effort to get as far away as possible from the first right. thing that we did. Um, and that's, I don't know, whenever I'm playing close, um, that's like the coolest feeling um, is to like, you know, there is call and response and stuff, but like you, you're each time you go around or, you know, you're, you're borrowing, you're eschewing, you're, you're, you're synthesizing um, on the fly. And that is kind of the escape. The, the originality is to try to be as unoriginal as possible. Um, and so that, you know, it, it, it does get back to that idea of escape as a means, uh, escape as, a, as, a, as an actual um, method, right? As opposed to a kind of a reaction. Yeah, and I, I mean, I said that jokingly um, earlier, but I, I think it is sort of serious. Like, I think it gets back to these models of revolution that we have, um, which tend to be these, like, uh, broken records of, like, this kind of cat and mouse of patriarchal um, power. And so, like, if that's what escape looks like, that ain't escape. Yeah. And so, you know, sometimes what might not seem as violent or as uh, clean of a rupture is actually producing a condition that is outside of what it was before. Yeah, that's true, actually, yeah. Yeah, escape is kind of, like, by, definite, by definition, I guess, you, you, you affect your own, you affect liberation. So yeah. If you, if you haven't actually achieved that, what? some, some uh, sort of semblance of that, then you're still, you haven't fully escaped. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, we could go down, we could go down a lot of rabbit holes. But, you know, if you look at, I mean, looking at the work even of, of someone like Mitch McEwen and who's looking at Marunaj and these different uh, communities of outsidership that were nonetheless stitching themselves together in this milieu that is the new world, right, at the time, or the so-called new world. So there's a hybridity that is producing a Cajun ness and sort of blackness uh which it, it, there are some false dichotomies that that get set up there uh, when really you know otherwise is maybe not the opposite it, it's just a spin on on things that results in a kind of right. condition right 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 thank you jerome and curry and thank you for your question chris um do you have any closing comments for us as we wrap up this great episode and session with you both. Oh, that was for us? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, we'll have to ask you a thousand more questions, but unfortunately, time does not allow. Um, no, I mean, this has just been amazing. It's super great to see you, uh, see you two again. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still reflecting on a lot of the uh, gems and, and strategies um, that were kind of born out of uh, the collaboration that Jerome and I kind of set forth. And um, so, you know, the, the, the learning doesn't stop, or it hasn't stopped even since, since that class. And 
Um, it's exciting to uh, it's an exciting time I think for the discipline, especially for folks like us. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, a, it's you know the, the work that I think the kinds of work that we're proposing I think could be more timely. So yeah. I'm just excited to see how um, the, the this kind of climate um, you know grows legs and extends into the future into some exciting kind of uh, unanticipated results outcomes. Um, yeah, I just I, I just want to thank you guys for for doing this um, series. Uh, we're honored to be part of it, and I'm honored to be certified to be part of it. And uh, it's great to to see last year you guys in the <laughs> audience and, and be there virtually in New Haven. I'll be there physically, uh, and we will both be there speaking in the spring. So we're excited to do another round of this. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And Kyla, do you have any closing remarks? Um, I don't. <laughs> but thank you so much for your time. I'm really grateful to have heard from you both. Um, I've seen a lot of the work Wayside does, so it's great to hear from you directly, um, which is super exciting. Um, yeah, I'm excited to meet you guys next semester. Thank you. And on behalf of Lost Rituals, Sydney and I, thank you so much to the three of you. Thank you, audience, for your time today. And looking forward to seeing your class happen in person next semester or hybrid next semester um, and hearing more from both of you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. you and elsewhere. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Good night.